the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question, veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardtlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. We're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You can stream live on 9.30 a.m. TheAnswer.com. You can listen to Apple Podcasts. We'll upload this recorded episode to the podcast later. Or you can go to www.talklawradio.com. We have all of our prior episodes there saved as well. So the State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and the State Bar wants attorneys to inform the public about the law. But because legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, and because laws are ever-changing, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only. It's not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, although in the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information you hear today should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Marquardt Law Firm sponsors our show and attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and state law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans. New businesses and old businesses, which might have issues with corporations, contracts, limited liability companies, limited partnerships, and we can represent those who face problems from lack of planning, including demands, lawsuits, claims, guardianship, probate, real estate, breach of contract, and personal injury. Check out our blog at Marquardt Law Firm uh, to learn about what's new in the law. Before we get started, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day and for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us for our sins, our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing and failing to do your will. Please help attorney Daniel Palmer and me give good information to the listeners about music law today. Help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now it's time for you to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Today we're going to be talking about music and the law. And our guest today is Daniel J. Palmer. He's an attorney. He works with a Marquardt Law Firm. And he's uh, been on the show before. Uh, so we'll talk more about his background and how it relates to law today. Daniel, welcome. How you doing? Good. So um, I know that you went to uh, you grew up in San Antonio. I did. 
tell us about uh, your high school and college experience. Sure. So I, I grew up here in San Antonio. Um, I went from uh, elementary through through middle school at uh, Holy Spirit Catholic School and then went to Antonian uh, College Prep for high school. Um, right after that, I went to University of Texas at Austin. Got to give the hook'em horns. Uh, <laughs> and after graduating from there, I went to St. Mary's Law School. Uh, graduated in 2010 and started my career uh, law career right around that time. Good. So you've been practicing for 11 years now. In November. And you're focusing on estate planning and probate. I am. I love it. But you have some background in music. Can you um, tell us a little bit about um, the instruments that you play? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, just a little bit of background on me. I mean, I started um, playing music when I was about five, six years old. I, I do come from a musical family. Um, my my father played uh, trumpet when he was a kid. He um, used to play at festivals and stuff. A lot of uh, Herb Alpert. I know a lot of listeners probably remember him. Uh, and my mom played saxophone as a kid, and, and her brother played guitar, uh, played a lot of country music. And so it's been around me my whole life. Um, so I started playing when I was five, uh, played guitar, acoustic guitar. And um, over the years, I kept playing. I fell in love with it. And became a little obsessed with it and just started picking up new instruments here and there and learning them. Um, I play about 14 different types of instruments now. Um, if you ask me to name all of them, I'll probably forget all of them. Well, what are some of them? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, um, I play guitar, bass. I play banjo, mandolin, uh, dulcimer, uh, big upright double bass, a little bit of trumpet, um, synthesizer. So kind of runs the gamut, different kinds of instruments. That's awesome. It's a lot of fun. When you're not playing music, uh, what kind of music do you listen to? So, uh, you know, it's funny. I People will ask each other that, especially in the music community all the time. What do you listen to? And, and um, often the answer is, well, I listen to a little bit of everything. And I think that definitely rings true for me. And I think a, a good way to put it was that there was a period um, right after college where I was in a jazz band, a hip-hop band, and a bluegrass band all at the same time. So I, I think that kind of explains my, my taste in music. It's really kind of all across the board. Um, generally, I listen to a lot of older music, um, especially in, in jazz and blues, um, but I listen to pretty much everything. Cool. And when you're not playing or listening to music, what do you do for fun? So I'm, I'm really into um, outdoors, into the outdoors. Um, I love camping, backpacking, hiking. Um, I'm a very, very avid reader um, and very avid record collector. Um, I know that's kind of in the field of listening to music, but I think the collection is kind of its own little little hobby uh, okay. too. So Great. Okay, so we're going to talk about music and the law. Um, give our our listeners a, a heads up, a overview of the different areas that we'll address today, and then we'll start with the first one. But let's give an overview first. Sure. So music law falls under the umbrella of what's called entertainment law, which covers um, sports law, film law, TV law, theater law. Um, music law is this little subsect of it. Um, music law covers a lot of different areas, but what we're spe specifically what we're going to be talking about today is um, the generally copyright law, um, as well as how things like licensing and royalty payments um, have affected the music industry and artists and how it's really changed that landscape dramatically on, on how artists make a living and how they market mm -hmm. themselves. Okay. So that's going to be a, a broad spectrum of the industry and the legal issues involved. And uh, we'll talk about some interesting cases too, Definitely. right? Absolutely. Okay. Good. Let's see. So first, um, we'll get into copyright law. What are some uh, big issues that come up there? Well, you know, when you talk about copyright law, it's important to talk about the Copyright Act of 1976. So without going into the whole history of, of copyright law in the United States, um, copyright law has existed for a long time. Um, but the Copyright Act of 1976 is the primary basis for copyright law as we know it today. So the major couple of things to take from that Copyright Act is, number one, it codified um, or put into law, put into statute, in a written form, exactly what, um, what powers you have as a copyright holder, what you can do with that copyright. It's essentially an, an asset. It's property that you own, um, what you're not allowed to do. 
Um, and if somebody steals your copyright or, or misappropriates it, what legal recourse you have. Um, one of the things that is important in that Copyright Act is that it explains how copyright is technically an automatic right that you have. So if you write a song, you, you technically have a copyright I was just going to ask, you know, how does a copyright get created, I guess, when the musician puts notes on a page? Sure. And it can be if – I, if I make up a song that's eight seconds long and I sing it into my iPhone and record it, I, you know, I technically own the copyright to that song if it's oh, an original okay. work. It doesn't even have to be written. It doesn't even have to be written. Um, now, it's always uh, smarter if you do record something. Obviously, you want to record it with the copyright office to prove your copyright, but it's technically not necessary to own that copyright. And could you do that with a recording? You sure can. Absolutely. Oh, okay. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about copyrights, how to get them filed, and what it really means, what are the rights that you have when you own a copyright, and then we'll talk about some interesting court cases. So stay tuned, stay with us, uh, continue listening. If you're interested in music and the law, or you have a friend or family member that's a musician, Uh, Maybe you have them uh, watch and listen to this show. So stay tuned. we've heard how important it is to avoid probate through a living trust. You want to do the best thing but frankly don't quite understand what probate is or how a living trust can help you. Attorney Todd Marquardt can help. He makes it easy to understand so you can avoid what a nightmare probate could be for your family. Call and make an appointment. Marquardt Law Firm makes it so simple to set up a living trust so you can feel secure now. Call Marquardt Law Firm and find out how a living trust can help your loved ones settle your affairs without a judge in court. Call 210-530-4278 That's 210-530-4278 Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. My guest today is Daniel Palmer. He's an attorney with Marquardt Law Firm focusing on estate planning and probate. Um, But Daniel, I asked you to be a part of the show today because you have a strong background in entertainment law. Will you describe for us what types of things you would do? Sure. So um, just so listeners know, there's typically two kinds of uh, music law attorneys. There are some that take on the managerial aspect of it. So that's your typical um, music manager that will travel with the band and and they will kind of be by their side. They're available 24 hours a day. I didn't do that. (laughs) I have a beautiful family at home and and I I try to keep it that way. So um, I handled more of the transactional side of the business. Um, so creating um, band contracts, which is basically like a prenuptial agreement for a band um, to have agreements on how to divide money, who owns copyrights, what happens if you leave the band, um, you know, how do we decide if we're going to fire somebody or hire a new member, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would uh, file copyrights for them if they needed that done. I would get licenses for them for the music if they needed that done. Um, I filed or threatened to file a lot of copyright infringement lawsuits in federal court on their behalf. Um, so... A lot of the the strictly legal work is what I handled as opposed to more of the management agent side of it. Okay, that makes sense. And so doing all those things for the musicians with regards to their copyright, you got to know the law on this area pretty well. I did. So we introduced the idea of what a copyright is. Uh, What are some of the rights that an owner of a copyright would have? Sure. So, I mean, it's it's fairly limitless. Um, you know, obviously, you, you, you own the right. So if you want to, you can sell it. Um, what people often do is they'll lease it for commercials, for commercial use, for whatever reason, um, to a film, to a TV show. Um, you can assign it to someone else. And so with the lease, they pay a royalty? Is that... What it would be called? Correct. So you get um, permission to use a license. Um, you get a, a, a partial license right in it, and then you have to pay a royalty on top of that. So you typically will pay for the license um, and then pay for the royalty on top. Okay. Um, and, you know, they can also obviously perform with it. They can adapt the work into something completely different. Um, so it's, again, they can do pretty much whatever they want with it. And if you assign this copyright to somebody, 
you get a payment in return for that. Correct. And then what would that person do with the music that I wrote? So they can do, um, you know, one of the most common instances this happens is uh, YouTube. So um, not everyone does it the right way, but what you're supposed to do is if you have a cover song, say you're covering a song and you're putting it on YouTube, um, yeah, you're supposed to get a license to do that and then pay royalties out of that. Um, so that's that's where we see it most often nowadays um, just because since YouTube cover songs have become kind of this world of their own, um, again, that's where we see it most. Okay. Okay, so what are some of the issues that come up with copyright? What do people fight about? I'll tell you in – because we're here in San Antonio, I'll tell you um, with local musicians that I represent and not some of the, the bigger national acts. But for local musicians, the number one issue that I saw with copyright infringement specifically is folks that would go into a studio and would record some sort of you know folk music. So that could be – um, you know, traditional American folk music that could be conjunto, that could be, I mean, whatever it is. Um, they'll go into a studio and record it. They leave. And then whoever the producer is there, whoever owns the studio might take that track and put it on a compilation of songs that they've also done in that studio and then sell it to um, record labels. They could sell it to uh, record stores mm-hmm. and make a profit off of it without ever paying the artist. Oh, okay. So a lot of times we would have to, um, you know, threaten to sue or sometimes sue um, these folks that would essentially steal this work. Mm-hmm. But you have to know about it. You do. And and unfortunately, um, almost all my clients, they found out the hard way, you know, where they had recorded a song and then they hear it on the radio. <laughs> Go, I, I didn't authorize that. <laughs> right. More than once that happened. So, so you got to be diligent about your efforts to protect your work. It's really important. And that's one of the things that people don't think about is, well, um, I have a contract you know, to, to record at this studio. But in this contract, a lot of times it didn't talk about like licensing issues or royalty issues or anything like that, or who even owns it, Mm -hmm. who even owns the copyright. And so sometimes these contracts would be written to where the owner of the studio and their contract, it might say in fine print, anything recorded here, we own the master of. Oh, so, and, and so if they owned the master, they could kind of do with it what they wanted to. So, so if you know somebody who's about to go record a song you might want to call an attorney like Daniel Palmer to re- review things or at least give you a heads up about what might be coming down the road. Somebody presents you with a piece of paper for your signature, <laughs> have it reviewed by an attorney so you know what your rights are. And I think it's really important for listeners to know, speaking of that, that oftentimes I found that these there was no malintent in these contracts. Sometimes it was a, a family friend who recorded this stuff. But they just pulled up a contract from Google, mm-hmm. and they used that. And then there was that deadly language in there. Oh. Um, so we had to go undo a bunch of stuff you know, within the copyright office, and, and it was just a, a nightmare that we had to pay for. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. why it's really careful. To, you have to be really careful to have an attorney review everything before you sign it. One big case that you wanted to talk about today, your favorite case, uh, John Fogarty versus Fantasy, Inc., Tell us about that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great case. You know, um, I, I think Todd, you can attest to this that most of the time when lawyers talk about interesting cases, they're usually only interesting to other lawyers. <laughs> um, but I think this one's a fascinating one. So uh, most people probably know John Fogarty from the band that he was in in the '60s and '70s, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. People call him CCR. So back in 1970, um, they recorded this song that John Fogarty wrote. He was the lead singer um, called "Run Through the Jungle." And uh, they released it on an album, and it did very well. It went gold and was was a hit. Um, and then a little bit later on, after the band broke up, um, in 1985, when he was on had a solo career, uh, he wrote and released a song called um, "Old Man Down the Road." So, what's important about these songs that we have to know is that "Run Through the Jungle" when he was with Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, that song, actually the copyright was owned by the owner of the record label. Um, it's this guy named Saul Zantz, who's a very famous record producer. Um, Old Man Down the Road, which is this one that he made in 1985, was owned by John Fogarty. Well, Saul heard this new song in 1985 and goes, hey, that sounds a lot like, in his mind, Run Through the Jungle, that other song that John Fogarty mm-hmm. wrote. But that he, the producer, owned. He technically owned the copyright. So he ended up 
suing John Fogarty in federal court for copyright infringement saying, hey, John Fogarty, this song that you wrote in 1970 sounds too much like this song that you – a different song that you wrote in 1985. So he essentially sued John Fogarty for sounding too much like John Fogarty. Let, let's test it out. Mark, can you play that first <laughs> Okay, now the other one. You got to hide it, hide it, hide it. The old man down the road. The old man is down the road. I can hear it. There's some, you know, the syllables. Yeah. In, the, in the phrasing and the words, I guess. My, one of my favorite parts about this case is that um, for any, if there are any attorneys listening or anyone that's been in federal court before, federal court is very formal, very proper. Um, no shenanigans in federal court. But during this trial that was in San Francisco, um, the federal court out in, in California, um, John Fogarty actually took the stand with his guitar and played the songs back to back for the jury so the jury could hear these. Um, so it was a very odd case. Uh, he actually won. Um, and then it got a little bit stranger after that. Uh, the, because he was the defendant in the case and he won, um, he had racked up like over a million dollars in legal fees, which he couldn't um, actually get because of the ways that copyright laws were written at that time. Um, so they actually, while he won the case, they appealed it mm-hmm. to try to get those attorney's fees. It went up to the United States Supreme Court and it got denied, but it was just a, a strange case all around. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's an expensive lawsuit. It is. (laughs) So John Fogarty won on on saying that it wasn't substantially similar enough? Correct. So that's the standard under the copyright laws. Um, It has to have some sort of substantial similarity. And is that defined well in the copyright laws? No. They leave that up to the courts um, and up to the jurors. And so – that's why I think that this is a really interesting case because it really reflects the nuances um, you know, of being influenced by music or stealing music, especially if it's the same person, which mm-hmm. makes it even stranger. And uh, Al was telling us uh, before we got started uh, something about uh, similarities in, in rock music in general. So can you have to have some background in music to – to be able to follow that argument, right? Yeah, you know, and he and I had a, had a good conversation about that, and and we were talking about how, you know, all, I mean, I don't, I think it's inarguable that all American rock and roll, all rock and roll music is derived from um, Black American music, blues, um, going back, you know, over a century, and twelve bar blues is ubiquitous in all forms of American rock music, and so when you have this one format. Um, that is in almost every modern rock song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to tell these minor differences between them. Yeah, so there's a lot of cases always going on about copyright infringement. All the time. And that's what the Copyright Act did is it allowed um, courts to interpret these however they you know deemed fit. Same with juries. So, you know, it's always funny to see entertainment lawyers arguing about this stuff because – um, it's it's so subjective. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the law allows it to be very subjective to decide if there is this substantial simil- uh, similarity between the two songs or not. I guess it's all in the ear of the the jury. It is. It <laughs> is. Could be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Okay. So, anything else about copyright that you want to mention? The only thing um, about copyright that I wanted to mention is that um, again, kind of going back to to listeners that. They might have a child or a grandchild that, that does some fun stuff on YouTube. And what I've seen, I had several clients that I represented where they did a fun little song on YouTube and then it blew up. And their mm-hmm. kid has, you know, 8 million views on YouTube out of nowhere. Um, so it's better to plan for this. If, if you anticipate a loved one that's maybe potentially looking at being in the inter- entertainment industry, it's better to set this up now than to deal with, you know, any type of nightmare issues with trademark or copyright down the road. Okay, so YouTube videos that are unique and and new, that creates a, a copyright there as well. Yeah, and, and that's that's what's important to know about those is that, you know, we won't 
we don't have enough time to go into um, licensing. Um, but there are all of these different types of licenses that you might need, especially if you're doing something like a cover song or a derivative work. So let's say you maybe you take an old song, but you change the lyrics to it or change it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's several different types of licenses that, that you need in order to do that. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, mm-hmm. They think, well, I can get a master license and that's it. Well, no. If, you know, if you're on YouTube, you need a master license, you need a mechanical license, and then you need what's called a synchronization license for the video portion of it. So it's – the point is that it's very complicated, and there's mm-hmm. not really an easy answer, as you know, with most legal questions. Um, and so it's really important for them to sit down with an attorney to go over options to make sure everything is done right from the beginning. I like that idea, uh, representing uh, YouTube creators. It's it's a <laughs> huge industry. You know, it really has become that. Okay, so we're about to take another break, and then we'll we'll be talking about the streaming industry and how the music law affects that and how streaming has influenced music and and musicians um i wanted to mention that um the bible mentions a lot of music it mentions a lot of different instruments and i didn't have time to write down all of those verses but going all the way back to the book of genesis uh, so i think the the lord blesses music Stay tuned. We'll come back. We'll be talking about how streaming music has affected the industry. Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. Our guest today is attorney Daniel Palmer. A musician, uh, entertainment attorney, and uh, estate planning and probate attorney. We just got through talking about copyright. Uh, During the break, Daniel, you're going to be floored by this. One of our listeners uh, wanted me to know that uh, she wants to donate some old records to you. Oh, how how amazing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because there's not many collectors left. Um, she had asked um, at at a at a bookstore collection type store, you know, how much will you pay for records? And basically, they told her next to nothing. Oh gosh! And so, uh, if if there's no market for it, she thought, well, I'll give it to somebody who will enjoy it. That, that's so sweet. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, so we finished talking about copyright. Uh, now we're going to talk about streaming. And so I'll just hand it over to you. Uh, what should we know about that? Well, I mean, I think what's um, important to know about streaming, I mean, now it's the standard for music. Um, you what know, does it, it mean? Yeah, that's a good question. So for those who don't know what music streaming is, it's basically um, the ability to use some sort of uh, service. The most famous one is Spotify. Apple Music is another very famous one. Um, in order to listen to music without downloading it. So it's essentially streaming it off of um, the internet or Mm -hmm. data from your phone. Um, You don't own the music as if you bought a physical album or bought a digital copy of something. You are basically um, using a leased copy of the music is kind of the easiest way to say it. Um, That's how these these companies work. So basically Spotify um, leases this music essentially – um, or uh, gets an, the okay from a record company. They pay them, obviously, for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they allow users who pay a fee to stream it. I think that I heard uh, some famous person was going to be- bequeath his iTunes collection and and found out that he couldn't do that, that it was, like you're saying, you don't really own that, and so you can't pass it down. It's really complicated when you get into digital music ownership. Um, and it's it's interesting. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time for it now, but um, those laws have changed dramatically in the past five years. Um, okay. And uh, I'd like to talk about it sometime. Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of time to talk about it. Um, but um, streaming is kind of, you know, that's what's what's uh, kind of the the – 
most important and kind of the forefront of music listening today, it's 85% um, of music that's listened to is, is via streaming services. Um, then there's about 7, 7.5% um, that is digital downloads, like owning an iTunes account mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. downloading stuff. And then another 7.5% is physical sales, um, vinyl, CDs. The tape industry, believe it or not, is coming back. Um, so it's, again, it's it's number one. Um, in terms of streaming, you know, everything kind of changed and moved towards the streaming format back in 2000. Um, most people know about this case when uh, Metallica sued Napster um, back in court in 2000. So for those who don't know or don't remember, uh, Napster, I found a good definition online of basically what Napster was. So uh, essentially it was a, a file browser. Um, this was an interface that granted people access to MP3, so digital copies of music. Um, and it was a peer-to-peer shared network. So if you were on this network, you could... Put, uh, upload a CD of an artist you like. If you wanted to put Fleetwood Mac rumors on there, you could put it on there. And then whoever else is on this network can automatically download it for free. So you could get loads and loads of free music. Um, anything you could possibly think of, you could download as long as you joined um, this network. Mm-hmm. And anybody could join it. So if, But they didn't pay. Yeah. The, no, no payment for it, nothing. So uh, – this was in like 99 and this was started by a high school dropout from the, or excuse me, college dropout from the Northeast that kind of put this together with a buddy of his. Um, and his idea was we're going to give people access to music that, you know, might not have access to certain types of music or records or whatever. So he did that and it did create access to this music that was unprecedented. The problem was that it was highly illegal. Um, what they were doing was essentially pirating music. Mm-hmm. So they were stealing music and allowing people to listen to it for free. And the people who created the music and the record companies who, who owned some of these copyrights and, and licenses weren't getting paid anything for it. So long story short, the band, the metal band Metallica um, filed suit against Napster um, in 2000, 2001, uh, basically alleging copyright infringement and, and piracy. Um, this is the case that got kind of the most attention, but actually the RIAA, which is the Recording Industry Association of America, sued Napster first for the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, what's important to know about this is this resulted in a, a settlement, um, but Napster went bankrupt within, I think, one year after this happened. Mm-hmm. The takeaway from this, though, is that it kind of opened up the world to this idea of the possibility of sharing music in a peer-to-peer format. So being able to have a digital copy of music and share it with somebody else. Um, you know, at that time, we weren't talking about streaming. You were downloading the music. Right. But that ter- eventually turned into, not too many years after that, um, streamable content. Um, and that's, again, that's, that's where we are in the industry now. Um, you know, bands have now dramatically changed their approach um, to how they create music and how they market themselves. Um, so you know, what, was the, what was the old way of how a musician would make money? Well, that's a great question. So pre-Napster, and this is just generally speaking, mm-hmm. um, you usually had bands that would get discovered by A&R reps. So it's kind of the, the old way that you'd see where an A&R guy goes into an, uh, a, a nightclub and he sees a, a band that he likes and he's, they sign a record mm-hmm. deal, right? Um, it's kind of the ancient way of doing things. Well, once streaming music came out, um, it gave a lot of power to bands because right around the same time, um, home recording equipment and studio equipment became much, much more accessible. Um, anybody who has an Apple computer knows that you get a garage band on there, which is basically a little mini studio that you get on your computer for free. Oh. Um, and so bands found out, well, shoot, I can record this music in my bedroom and then you know, I can sign up an agreement on Spotify to put my music on there and stream it. So I'm just going to do everything DIY, you know, do-it-yourself mm-hmm. kind of attitude. And so you kind of took the power away from um, you know, these major labels and dictating what kind of band you get to be, what you get to release. And, and everybody's kind of taking full creative and business control of themselves um, and, and their art. So it's, it's interesting how it's changed. There's another argument or uh, discussion as to whether or not they're getting paid properly because on Spotify, I think an artist gets paid between a third of a penny and a half a penny per stream. Wow. So it's not much. Um, but again, it's, it's allowed these artists um, to really, truly take control out of the hands of these you know, big business companies, these big record labels, and do things how they want to do it. Um, 
one of the things that you know I'd, I'd love to to kind of talk about and share um, are some of the unique ways that bands are are able to make money with merch now. Um, merchandise. Yes, merchandise. Sorry, <laughs> yes, with with merchandise. Um, I saw a, a band recently who who wrote an album about the book and movie Fight Club. And one of the ways that they marketed merch is and you have to be familiar with the movie, but they made soap with their with their band name on it. It's kind of a reference uh, oh, okay. to the movie. Um, you know, I have seen bands do really interesting things. I, I brought some some records along to show you kind of again where it's moving. People are uh, bands and artists are having to be more creative and how they market themselves and how they make money um, because they're not making it through physical media as much anymore since everybody's streaming. So they have to be creative on how they release their physical media. So do we have a second to kind yeah, of show you a Yeah, let's look couple? at that. Sure. I had heard a, a podcast uh, by the the guy that was lead of Hootie and the Blowfish. Was his name? Darius Rucker? Yeah. He said back in the old days they would make money by having a concert mm-hmm. well, and selling the CDs. Well, now they don't make so much on that end. They make more money on T-shirts and koozies and things like that. And it's a good thing to bring up because, um, you know, that's a huge band. And so uh, a lot of these big bands have not gotten as affected as some of the independent bands. Um, Independent bands are making all their money from touring and from merchandise. um, And they're making virtually nothing from physical music. Um, But they've gotten creative with it. Um, So I'll show you. Yeah, show us what you've got. I got a few cool ones. So this is from uh, a jazz uh, artist that I really like. Her name is Esperanza Spalding. She's a, a bassist and a singer, and she did this project in 2017 to where she was going to write uh, and record an album on Facebook Live over the period of 77 hours. So you got to watch the entire process. Oh wow! And so if you can see this. This is an actual picture of her kind of writing on on all of these sheets, uh, you know, music and lyrics and stuff like that. And uh, it was very limited. I think she made maybe 1,500, 2,000 of these. Maybe I could be wrong on the number. Um, but if you bought this record because she pressed it on vinyl, she signed every copy. And she also cut out a piece of paper from the lyrics that she wrote while she was in the studio and wow. plastered it on here. And I mean, this is a Grammy award-winning artist who's played mm-hmm. at the White House multiple times, and to have a literal piece of her art that she created is mm-hmm. really cool and interesting. So um, there's a premium to pay for it, but collectors mm-hmm. like myself love this stuff. Yeah, that's a, a collectible piece because it's both music and art. Absolutely. What else do you have there? Uh, so this one is just another one by an artist named Will Butler, and um, he did a variant of a cool peppermint swirled vinyl that he did so it's just an interesting kind of take on a traditional vinyl collectors will trade these and sell them on ebay and and uh you know because they're limited edition Mm -hmm. um people will will search out for them and buy them so okay great well you're here with talk law radio i'm todd marquardt we're talking about music law the attorney daniel palmer when we come back we'll talk about his legacy uh you won't want to miss this because it's very unique stay tuned we've heard how important it is to avoid probate through a living trust. You want to do the best thing but frankly don't quite understand what probate is or how a living trust can help you. Attorney Todd Marquardt can help. He makes it easy to understand so you can avoid what a nightmare probate could be for your family. Call and make an appointment. Marquardt Law Firm makes it so simple to set up a living trust so you can feel secure now. Call Marquardt Law Firm and find out how a living trust can help your loved one settle your affairs without a judge in court. Call 210-530-4278 That's 210-530-4278 Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. We're learning about music law with attorney Daniel Palmer. Mr. Palmer works with Marquardt Law Firm. He is doing a lot of estate planning and probate these days. Uh, So if you know a, a musician who is getting into the business, you might want to send them that way to get some uh, advice about what they're doing. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about some unique collectible 
uh, record albums. Daniel, what else do you have? So I wanted to show you one that uh, I thought was interesting to, to kind of talk about how record labels are also kind of taking advantage of this collectible uh, you know, industry within the vinyl community. Uh, there's a record company that released this called the Voyager Golden Record. And just to give a very quick background on it, um, for any science nerds or NASA fans out there like myself, um, in 1977, um, NASA um, sent two Voyager spacecrafts up into interstellar space. Um, in the years prior to that, NASA actually commissioned this committee uh, that was chaired by, most people know him, Carl Sagan, very, very well-known astrophysicist. Mm-hmm to put together this committee um, to create essentially uh, what would be like a cultural time capsule of Earth and of humans. Mm -hmm. And what they asked them to do was put together something that we can put in these rockets that we shoot up so that if any intelligent extraterrestrial being or human finds this a thousand years from now, they'll know what humans are like or we're like Mm -hmm. at this time. Mm -hmm. So they actually did that back in the 70s. And a record company came and they did a complete replica of everything that they did. So in the original one, they had a, a booklet to show, you know, different things uh, that describe human life. So there's obviously there's Taj Mahal. There's all these beautiful works of architecture, um, Jane Goodall. So all of these things that describe what it is to be human. Um, and then on the actual records, you have depictions of, again, Earth at the time. So you have uh, recordings of children laughing. You have recordings of uh, kids saying hello in 55 different languages. Oh. Um, you have works by Bach, Stravinsky, Beethoven, um, you know, people from, uh, you know, folks from the rainforest that are creating their own, you know, cultural music. Um, my favorite was that they had uh, the song Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry on there. Mm-hmm. That that was the big controversial one um, because uh, they said to Carl Sagan, they said, well, rock and roll is adolescent music. And, and Carl Sagan said, well, yeah, there's a lot of adolescents on the planet, so, <laughs> which I love that. Yeah. But yeah, they did a recreation of it in, in kind of the 24 karat gold. So okay. it's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. So record companies or record labels are getting in on this too and being really creative on, on what they release. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay, so the fourth segment of our show is usually dedicated to legacy, and because that's usually part of an inheritance is uh, the values that you want to pass on or favorite family heirlooms. And so today, uh, Mr. Palmer brought with him something that he will likely leave to his son, uh, and he'll describe it in detail uh, why it's so meaningful. Yeah, so if y'all can see this, there we go. So um, We'll describe for the listeners. That's right. I forgot not everybody's watching here on <laughs> Facebook Live. So what I'm holding is, um, for, especially for you guitarists out there, it's a Fender Tele- American Telecaster guitar. So it's a made-in-USA Telecaster, which is a type of electric guitar uh, model that was created by Fender back in 1950. Um, the thing that's cool about this one um, that I have is that it is um, modeled after Bob Dylan's Telecaster that he had um, and recorded with in the late 60s, early 70s. So for people who have never met me, I'm fanatical about Bob Dylan. Um, if anybody wants to talk about Bob Dylan <laughs> after this is over, call me anytime. I'm happy to. I'm truly obsessed with him. And so um, as guitarists uh, often know, you you chase a certain sound with guitars. You like a certain tone, and you do anything you can to try to uh, create that or recreate that. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to uh, basically cobble together a uh, a Telecaster that had the exact specifications of Bob Dylan's guitar. And at that you couldn't time. find one already made that way. No, no. And the ones that I did were in were in horrific condition. Were missing parts, and so um, and. Bob Dylan modified his a little bit, so it wasn't one that you could just go buy at a store. Okay. So, I mean, everything on this from, you know, the the brass saddles uh, to the chrome plating, even to this little knob on the pickup cha- selector, to the length of the screws and the material and the material that the neck's made out of, everything on this thing um, I have searched in music forums and on eBay and pawn shops to try to make it an exact replica. So you had to re redo it in some parts in some parts yeah so it, it took a long time but it's it is it's done 
<laughs> so hopefully my, my seven-year-old boy will appreciate it at, at some point. But. Yeah, and he'll always remember your love for that music. And when you describe it to him, you know, that's time spent with him. So that'll be part of the, your legacy also. Without question. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, when I was uh, looking up things about this 1976 Copyright Act, I ran into this uh, court case, um, Larry Spire, Inc. versus uh, Bourne Company. And it the issue involved was whether the heirs could uh, terminate an assignment of the copyright. So... The way I would describe that is um, the the deceased person had leased a copyright to this producer uh, while he was still alive, uh, and then when he passed away, he he left this copyright to some beneficiaries, and the, some of the beneficiaries didn't agree that other beneficiaries. There was a mistress that was a beneficiary. And so the children said, uh, we want to cancel that assignment that the deceased person made while he was alive um, because they wanted you know, to have full control again. So why, why would this be in the law? It's a good question. That's it's one of the things that um, often I would get asked by clients regarding copyright laws. What, why, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, why? And and a lot of times we just, we don't know what the legislative intent is on these. Um, you know, the beauty of copyright law is that it's very liberally interpreted. Um, it can be kind of a pain in the behind sometimes, but um, what's nice is if there is an issue that seems unfair, um, you know, based on the law. Put it in front of a judge. Put it in front of a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had uh, to go back to that Fogarty case very briefly. I've written, I've read, excuse me, so many articles by legal scholars on that as to why the wrong decision was made. Um, you know, in terms of legality specifically, but that's why sometimes you put things in front of a jury. You know, right. um, if it seems silly to a jury, you know, they might go your way. And sometimes common sense can go really, really far on cases like this. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wanted to mention something about um, – I, re- I read that it would be good for seniors, you know, after retirement or when they're nearing old age to pick up an instrument and try and start playing. Um, so the article said that learning to play an instrument is great exercise for the brain. It causes multiple parts of the brain to work simultaneously as a unit. I guess that's when you get right brain and left brain working together. Uh, the instrument you choose is a reflection of your own personality. So it's a way to express yourself. And uh, it's something fun that they can do. So after uh, my dad's mom, my grandmommy, passed away, um, it took about a year for my granddad to really let that sink in and, and move on. And one of the things that helped him was playing the guitar. So my dad got him a guitar, and I think that he took some lessons, and he really tried to play it because he loved the guitar. And uh, one time I was visiting him. I said, Granddad, how's the guitar going? He said, "Uh, I had to give it up. Well, he didn't quit anything very easily. And I said, what happened? He said, well, my fingers wouldn't do what my brain was telling them to do. <laughs> you know, this was when he was in his 90s. And so, um, you know, he just went back to going to a lot of concerts. And uh, he started dancing, you know, because that was fun. He said it would help him relax. So there is something to uh, music and, and old age or even young age, uh, picking up an instrument and doing something. Um, the Just like in your family, your, your dad gave you a strong appreciation for music. Uh, my dad did the same. The, the legacy in our family is the alto saxophone. 
My dad played the alto saxophone. I played the alto saxophone. Uh, my oldest son, Reagan, played the alto saxophone. Then my middle son, Thomas. Then my, my youngest daughter, Caitlin. We all played the alto saxophone. So uh, we talk about that often. Now, um, my dad and I played in college. Um, my children, they are no longer interested. So they, they didn't carry that on beyond what the requirement was at school. Um, but my dad still plays saxophone. Oh, wow. He even played tenor saxophone. And he's involved in a group called IROC, which is a group of optometrists that play music. And he has played for several years at a concert in New York City at the Hard Rock Cafe. And they'll they'll bring in a famous headliner to play with them. Uh, and when I went, um, there was the guitar player from Twisted Sister, hmm. which I had never really heard before or, or appreciated. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And, and so um, one of the paths that my dad didn't focus on was uh, being a professional musician. He always had this idea that he would call the band Doc Marquardt and the Purple Blues, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, he was really into jazz and the blues also. So um, I, that's also a path that that I didn't go down. My first major in college at Texas Tech was uh, was music. Oh wow! And so I played uh, saxophone for concert, and I played the sousaphone in the. Uh, going band from Raiderland during marching season, uh, during football season. And uh, what changed my mind was the piano. Uh, it had been, you know, uh, 15 years or more since I played the piano, and I had to take this class. And, man, I could not get my left hand and right hand to play at the same time. And so I was having to practice piano as many hours of the day as I had to use for history and English and math. And I also had my saxophone class. So uh, being a music major was more difficult than preparing for law school. Thanks for joining us. We have to go. Thank you. Uh, Stay tuned. Next week, we'll talk about real estate.